1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Iyad Hassami. I'm a host of this channel. In my research as a doctoral student in the School of English at the University of Leeds, I'm working on ecology and agriculture in post-independence Lebanon and my project is supported by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council through the White Rose College of the Arts and Humanities. Today on the show, we'll be talking to Adam Romero about his new book, Economic Poisoning, Industrial Waste and the Chemicalization of American Agriculture. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Adam, I wonder if you could begin uh, the discussion today by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Uh, I I am a uh, assistant Professor at the University of Washington uh, at Bothell. Um, I teach in uh, science, technology, and society, as well as in environmental studies majors. Um, uh, you know, background in geography and agriculture, um, and I've been interested in questions of agriculture for a long time.
1: Wonderful. So uh, let's move now to your book, Economic Poisoning. How did you come to write this?
0: I was kind of a roundabout process. You know, over the long term, I sort of started my academic life as a scientist, working in labs, trying to understand pollution. And it was sort of a slow evolution to the more uh, social science and humanities uh, side of things. This particular book, however, actually arose due to a family emergency, Um, in which as, you know, uh, PhD students, you have a project. And as I set out to go do field work, uh, my father had a stroke and I needed to complete a book that I could do from a library. Um, and that's, I'd always really been interested in these questions. And in many cases, that sort of, uh, life emergency freed me up to really dive deep into the sort of, uh intricate history of chemicals in agriculture.
1: Thank you for sharing. You begin the book with a poignant and heartfelt letter addressed to the late Rachel Carson, author of Silent Spring. And then you move to laying out the key concepts of your argument. These notions include agriculture as a sink and as a burial ground for toxic waste or economic poison. There are two terms, repair and iotrogenic harm, that are also prominent. Can you tell us about how you understand and interrelate these concepts?
0: Yeah, the most or the, the most simplest way that I, I think about this is thinking about all the functions or uh, functions that agriculture serves, right? In addition to providing food, you know, and perhaps in the United States, the sort of rural life aspects of agriculture as agriculture began to industrialize, it began to take on new roles. And one of those roles that I, I really began to see as I delved deep into the um, archive was that it actually became a place to dispose of waste, you know, in the same place that, you know, you would throw away trash in your bin. Right. There were certain properties of agriculture, especially how it's it's a, you know, a biological industry that made it a good place for particularly very toxic forms of waste to be dumped, right? And it wasn't just the fact that it was being dumped there. It was the fact that they were very useful. So it it in turn was serving multiple purposes. It was acting as uh, an agent of toxicity for farmers that would allow them to, you know, to kill insects. But it was also allowing industry itself to essentially offload their waste onto agriculture. And so when I argue that agriculture became a sink, that's essentially what I'm sort of asking. It's a a dual function in which pesticides, the active use of pesticides on a farm is actually a way of disposing of pesticides for industry in terms of iotrogenic harm, um, and repair, uh, I actually borrow those terms from a couple of other scholars, repair coming from uh, Chris Hanks' uh, analysis of, um, uh, what's it called, extension in California, really looking through how power has shaped extension and what's the role of uh, agricultural extension in the United States. And so he partly argues that that the role is to essentially repair the mistakes of agriculture. Um Another author, Julie Guthman, uses this concept uh, very well to explore uh, extension as well, but particularly around uh, the strawberry production. I'm using it to really think about this longer history in which what is the role of agricultural extension? What is the role of the state um, in relation to industry? And in this case, it's often stepping in and repairing the past mistakes of industry Those past mistakes, however, are often driven by industry itself, right? The the mistakes that they end up trying to repair are driven by past decisions. Uh, For instance, uh, we'll get to it, but in chapter three, I really look at the development of oil sprays, um, the sort of first version of petrochemicals, and those were developed actually as a way to respond to problems caused by earlier forms of pesticides. And so that's what I see in terms of how they sort of interrelate. As agriculture industrializes, it, it, it begins to need pesticides to maintain itself. Those pesticides offer industry an opportunity to get rid of waste. But that waste, in turn, causes its own set of problems, which the state then steps in or extension steps into repair. Um, and that repair itself then goes on to cause more problems that will eventually have to be repaired. Um as you read the book, you know you can kind of see this when you look at an individual decision, you often don't see it. but when you sort of zoom out to you know a couple hundred years worth of history, you can sort of see how many of the what uh, you know agricultural scientists what extension scientists are trying to do is actually they're responding to conditions created earlier on by someone else
1: mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yes, um, I really like how you um, focus on extension. It's also uh, something that I've observed in uh, Lebanon's agricultural history and relationship to American empire. So you, you were talking about zooming out. So let's zoom out um, and to the late 19th century in your first chapter, where agrochemistry and a social history of arsenic and copper smelters come vividly to life, and you humorously and morbidly title your chapter, Arsenic and Old Waste. There, in the late 19th and early 20th century, in Europe and the US, we learn in your chapter about types of arsenic variants, such as Paris green and London purple, and the beetles and moths who are the targets of these poisons. Chemistry becomes central to American agriculture. How so?
0: Like many industries at the time, you know, chemistry, especially as it's arising in the 1850s and 1860s, especially as organistry gets off the ground, uh, invades all sorts of industries and agriculture is not immune from that. Um, you have to think about what the possibilities that people saw in chemistry. You know, people really, depending on the time period, really saw that these new uh New types of chemicals would be able to do things that humans had never been able to do before. And people often turn to them as a way to uh, alleviate particular issues. Uh, chemistry enters agriculture in all sorts of different ways, however. You know, I'm focused mainly on pesticides. You know, in the 1860s and 1870s, you really get that first generation of arsenic-based pesticides uh really flooding into the United States, but also at other parts of the world. You know, they show up in Australia, they show up in Algeria, you know, it's particularly it's uh where empire goes, arsenic goes as well. Um you know, but chemistry is showing up in all sorts of different ways in the machinery, in the types of eventually in the types of fuel that are used, uh the types of rubber that are produced at tractors, the lithographs used to advertise the chemicals used as preservatives. So during, especially the late nineteenth century, you know, chemicals are entering agriculture across the board in all sorts of different ways. You know, I'm really focused on how chemistry becomes the solution to pests, right? Or to the insects that are thriving essentially on these new forms of agriculture, um, and that is a, a little bit different story in the sense that in those cases, you're directly seeing the, you know, the impacts of chemicals, right. Where the other ones may be sort of, uh, uh, secondhand, right. These are direct impacts. Um, and it starts slowly, right. With a little bit here and a little bit there, a little bit of success brings more, but I mean, you also have to think of capitalism. These chemicals were untested. You know, they were sold with, uh, without any knowledge often of whether they worked, whether the efficacy worked. And so once like someone got the idea that these chemicals worked a little bit, everyone jumped on the bandwagon. And so you often saw the flood of chemicals, in this case, arsenic and all the arsenic derivatives into agriculture, not necessarily always because they were working. You know, sometimes it was simply because uh, there was money to be made in the process and that's a lot of what the arsenic story is, right? The, part of the reason I title it Arsenic and Old Waste is that this arsenic was being produced for hundreds of years often before people began to re-envision it, right? Arsenic wasn't ever thought of as a resource in the way it was really in the late 19th century once new things or new uses uh, were developed for it, Um And so, yeah, you see chemistry enter agriculture across the board in the late 19th century. um, But pesticides uh, and eventually fertilizers are going to be your your most direct. Right. And that's something I should have also mentioned, you know, in 1840s and 1850s, as chemistry begins to understand elements and those things, fertilizer is also going to be a big shift. And for most farmers, that probably is the first moment in which uh, chemistry, as we think of today, begins to um come to the farm.
1: I like how you're framing arsenic as a resource, and um, how you're describing chemistry entering industry, which also enters the industry of warfare, mm-hmm. which takes us to your next chapter, where you raise a compelling question: Can insects wage war? One of the aspects of this chapter that struck me most was your consideration of the pest war within a framework of just war theory. You include illuminating and bone chilling archival photography of fumigating derricks in tents. So how do insects become pests and why do the humans in your book justify biochemical warfare against them?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question and one I continue to think about a lot. I've been involved in agriculture for a long time in different forms, and I really used to be bothered by the idea of the war on nature. I, I mean, as, a, you know, as an intellectual argument, I understood it, but the sort of comparativeness to to like human warfare, I often thought it was uh, uh, a little bit hyperbolic. Um, and thus, I actually went into this chapter with, uh, probably the opposite of what I ended up coming out with. Um, you know, I, in the book I mentioned reading Edmund Russell's War in Nature, and you clearly see how important war and warfare is to the development of modern agriculture, right? You know, the, uh, organophosphates perhaps is a good example of that. These nerve toxins developed for chemical warfare, eventually used in agriculture, right? And things are moving back and forth. But as I got deeper and deeper into the archive, I couldn't escape war. Like, war became this central feature of so much around pesticides. It it was as if the people uh, trying to understand or trying to deal with insects eating their crops fundamentally believed that they were at war with non-humans, And that really got me thinking about, well, you know, what role does it really play? And it actually ended up me going the complete opposite way than I had originally thought, that it's even more important than I, than, you know, someone like Evan Russell will claim. War is fundamental to the development of, or development and spread of pesticides because it provides the rationale, uh, it provides the, uh, Uh, justification for collateral damage that happens to it, right? What happens during states of war that wouldn't happen during times of peace? Um, And that's why I began to frame it within the framework of just war theory, right? If we actually take these arguments that there is a war on nature, then we have to sort of think about uh, what sort of war it is. And to do that, I actually go back through and ask the question of, it's a very simple question, can pests wage war, right? And it comes down to a question of intent. Do we give insects agency, you know, as humans enough that we can wage war against them? You know, and there's not a whole lot on this, right? For the most part, we do not, uh, non-human animals do not have intent or sort of agency in the same way that we uh, understand it, which is why I turned to a place where they do sort of talk about these things being the animal trials in which certain forms of agency or certain forms of intent are given to insects in order to justify their annihilation. Um, And that's what I really saw, right? In order for, the sort of industrialization of pesticides, its growth, its you know, its pollution of the world. Uh, for for it to have happened, it really needed this justification of war, and to do that, humans had to reconstruct uh, insects as pests, right? And so I really got interested in the idea of pests because to call something a pest is to ascribe intent to it. Right? And if you actually read, you know, go through just war theory, it almost means that the act of calling something a pest, right, means it must be eradicated. So it becomes a really important move. Um, and of course, I'm not the only one to sort of have said that. A uh, oh man, I can't remember his name. Uh, the guy who wrote Sand, Ca- Sand County Almanac uh, also said some of these things about weeds, like a weed isn't uh, a plant out of place necessarily a weed is something that we have humans have decided is out of place Um, and same goes for insects right whether these insects cause harm is a different question it's what intent we place on those insects and when we place intent on those insects what does that allow us to do to them perhaps that we wouldn't do in a normal time you know and, and again like this seems uh, hyperbolic on my part as well until you actually go read who the scientists were and what they were actually thinking they literally believed that they were at war with insects that the world war wasn't between humans and you know one country and another country it was between humans and insects for the ultimate domination of the earth and those sort of rationales justified right? What was coming around pesticides. Um, And so it's a really important thing to consider, like what we call or what we consider a pest and why we consider it a pest and what work the idea of calling something a pest does.
1: I'm seeing flashes from starship troopers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) So chapter three, in chapter three, you shift to petrotoxicity oil sprays and the like, California and its oil companies provide the setting for what you term a petrochemical future. The experiments with petrochemicals intended to, as you write, make mass non-human death as reproducible and efficient as possible. What are these oil sprays and how did companies build a market for them?
0: So to understand the sort of what I call the first generation of petrochemicals, often when we think of petrochemicals, we think of a post-World War II era. But what I quickly figured out was that other forms of oil and petroleum were being used as poisons uh, for decades prior to that. But to really understand oil, again, you have to understand sort of the waste angle. You also have to understand the history of California within the greater history of oil production, Um, oil was being produced at the turn of the century in California, just, it was, it was like gangbusters, right? Oil was coming out of the ground left and right. They didn't know what to do with it, but oil as an entire, uh, as a whole, it is made up of, you know, tens, perhaps thousands of molecules. And when you actually began to refine that oil to separate out into different parts, um, only some of it is useful. Right. When you, you know, tap a well, an oil well, you get all sorts of stuff from natural gas to to wet gas, to uh, heavy oils, to asphalt. And it really depends on the well. Um, and as California oil producers were producing tons and tons of oil, there were laws uh, being passed in California around conservation of natural gas as a way to prevent the overproduction of oil caused by California's land use sort of laws and practices. And uh, from that were these waste products, essentially, of refineries. They tended to be very low value. Some of them were burned um, for energy, although it didn't really work too well. Um, And so they're being produced. And that coincides with uh, what we were talking about before as early repairs, particularly around arsenic, uh, around cyanide, right? It's clear that these uh, early pesticides are no longer working. Um, arsenic uh, st- starts to show up, um, pesticide resistance. Uh, for cyanide, same thing as well, right? Pesticide resistance by 1910, 19, you know, 15 is well off the ground. And so agriculturalists are looking for new chemicals as a way to respond to the sort of failure of older chemicals. And a lot of them turn to uh, these oil sprays simply because they're around. There's a long history of trying to use oil and kerosene um, more in public health, right? You see that a little bit earlier uh, in terms of trying to manage um, mosquitoes or something like that, right? But it, it makes sense that it's in California, right, where you have such industrialized agriculture you have a massive oil and uh, petroleum economy getting off the ground, are sort of going to meet together. This demand or need for a new chemical, as well as this sort of overproduction or sort of the, the massive production of chemical waste, in this case, just petroleum byproducts. And once that starts happening, people realize that oil is very cheap, right? And that really matters for agriculture. You know, one of the things I talk about is that how important cheapness is. And that's one of the reasons why waste is so great, right? Farmers operate on very low margins. And so it's not just something that they need something that it can't just be the toxicity that matters, right? There's all these other characteristics that count as well. And cheapness is part of that. Oil was just cheap. It was incredibly cheap. Um, If you could spray, for instance, oil on on your citrus trees rather than use cyanide, you could end up saving lots of money and which wouldn't give you more profit in the end. But the problem with oil is they didn't know much about it, right? Organic chemistry began around coal and, you know, in places like Europe and England and Germany. But in the United States, especially on the West Coast, the, the hydrocarbon of choice was oil. And thus you quickly see as Uh, experimenters and scientists see that there's probably something within this oil that causes insects to die, Um, people began to experiment with it quite a bit. The problem being that uh, some oils cause insects to die, some oils do nothing. And what people quickly figure out is it's really hard to parse what within oil is toxic, right? something they still haven't really figured out. Um, and they eventually back out a, a type of oil um, that can be used on agriculture. It takes a long time. It takes, you know, over a decade, lots of science, but they're essentially able to back this out. And because of that, oil eventually becomes one of the most popular and used uh, pesticides, right? These are very narrow fractions of oil. They tend to be, they're not like gasoline. They're, they're much heavier or about twice as heavy as gasoline, um, and companies are able to use the physical characteristics of the oil. Again, they still don't really know much about the chemistry or much about the toxicity, but they can relate the physical characteristics to toxicity. And that becomes how they sort of grow these sprays. And thus what you get this kind of a, a cooperation, right between agriculture and uh, uh, the petroleum industry, where but the petroleum industry, begins to see agriculture as a big, as a more important outlet for their chemical waste products. So much that in the 1930s, right after the Great Depression, you see oil companies move into the pesticide industry, right, which sort of becomes commonplace after World War II, because they view them as this really important part of uh, their industry, right? It's a it's an outlet for all of these products that there aren't uses for yet, Um and that will eventually go on to make other forms of chemical once these oil companies start to invest heavily in sort of the research and development side. But oils, chemicals are this sort of uh, stopgap between especially the early metal type pesticides and then the more synthetic type petrochemicals you have over World War II, right? For a period of 30-ish years, these are a mainstay of agriculture, not just in California, but across the world. Um and one of the interesting things is they never have actually disappeared, right? That they simply have become the inert part of a lot of sprays. So they're mixed in with the active ingredient to um, to thin it, to let it make it spread better. So they haven't really disappeared. Uh, one of the most interesting things that I found uh, about these sprays, though, is that they actually are... Uh, there's evidence of them being endocrine-disrupting chemicals, Um, One of the scientists I talked about early on, who ended up eventually working for Chevron, realizes that he can do all sorts of crazy things with them. He can uh, make trees break dormancy early. He can make trees grow bigger fruits and smaller leaves and bigger leaves and bigger shoots. And so uh, he's able to manipulate the sort of physiology, the um, endocrine systems of these trees with these chemicals. They never get off the ground. But it's sort of a foretelling of what's going to come after World War II, particularly with the introduction of plant hormones and then hormone-based pesticides.
1: That's all very reassuring. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So let's stay with the theme of cooperation and research and development. The Crop Protection Institute is a central focus of Chapter 4, Public-Private Partnerships. What is this organization, and how did it change the research and development of pesticides in the United States?
0: Uh, So the Crop Protection Institute... Was a quasi non governmental so- or organization, and I say quasi because it was sort of formed by the federal governments uh, right after World War One, but it it wasn't funded by the federal government, even though it was sort of controlled by the scientists of the federal governments. Uh, so, just to back up, the, the Crop Protection Institute was formed uh, in 1920 by the National Academy of Sciences, particularly the National Research Council, as a way to Uh, rationalize pesticide use across the country. I actually knew nothing about this when I started. Um, As I mentioned in the book, one of my big archival sources is the Journal of Economic Entomology, and I read it cover to cover for 50 years. And as I was reading it, in the footnotes below a lot of studies were funding, uh, funded by the Crop Protection Institute, funded in conjunction with the Crop Protection Institute, and so I started tracing that back and it took me to uh, the archives of National Academy of Sciences to see what this thing was and what it was eventually became this really important body during the interwar period that really focused on what I said was rationalizing pesticides across the country um, as a way to sort of prevent, at least in their argument, mass starvation, right? Because a lot of the people who developed this believed that the next world war would be about food, not necessarily about military power. But it proved incredibly important because of many decisions that people made, right? These were powerful players in the USDA, um, in the federal governments, really deciding that there is no other way to address some of these issues other than pesticides. Pesticides was the only way in which the United States would be able to address these big food insecurity issues. Um, And so that's what I end up really talking about, sort of the role that this institution plays. And this institution was sort of fascinating. Again, it didn't fund directly the research. The research was funded by private industry. Um, that would coordinate with this Crop Protection Institute to do experiments and studies at extension. So what you had at the end of World War I was a bunch of companies who had invested a ton into chemical research and agricultural extension, which didn't have a ton of money. And so they were the, the whole goal of the Crop Protection Institute was to bring the two together. They would be the mediator between the private world and the public world. And that's why I probably call it public-private partnerships. And what you really see over you know, the 20 to 30-year history of this uh, institute is that it goes from being a place where companies could get chemicals tested you know, and share that knowledge with everyone. That's sort of how it was originally envisioned, right? One company would pay to have their nickel compound tested and that uh, any, any member of the institute would get that information to sort of the model we had after World War II in which uh, extension or uh, public institutions were acting as uh, testing grounds for private companies and that information and data and knowledge produced would uh, be limited. It would only go to that company. And so that's really that important transition. And that's the role they played. They were the mediator, the liaison between private industry which had a lot of capital and a lot of chemicals, including, as I mentioned, a lot of toxic waste, especially after World War One, and agriculture extension in the United States, which needed money. They needed research funds. And so there's actually some of the most interesting things to me is the haggling within the institute itself, right? And whether they can support private industry, right? The whole point of extension is for the public. Right. And so this becomes that moment, a really important moment in which uh, people very high up in the governments decide to go a different way. Right. In which you support the public by supporting private industry. And that sort of has become the mantra of a lot of uh, sort of uh, uh, extension agencies, particularly after World War Two.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Let's move back to petrol then. Uh, your last chapter, From Oil Well to Farm, revolves around the so called replant disease. What does this term mean and why is it central to your argument?
0: Uh, so, replant disease is a, a name, uh, a common name for many different things. It describes a situation in which you, re- when you plant the same thing in the same soil over and over, you actually um, you cause a buildup of disease in the soil, whether it's you know uh, fungal or bacterial. There's that's why there's a lot of different uh, types of disease that sort of are captured in that term. Um, it's really important because, especially in California, you know, by the 1930s and 1940s, industrial agriculture had been uh, flourishing for decades. And they were driving the land, you know, in new intensive ways. And they were planting the same crop in the same soil over and over. And the land, at least in their words, began to become sick. As they began to plant lettuce in a lettuce field, strawberries in a strawberry field over and over, their yields were dropping. So much to the point that land was taken out of production um, because it could no longer produce a viable crop and that really was when we think of you know industrial agriculture people often think of monoculture right and they often think of monocultures of space right really big fields planted all in corn you know all the same variety right but it's really on the other side there's that temporal you know temporal side to monoculture and that's what i'm really exploring in this chapter how does how do you right if you want to create agriculture in the same vein as industry, where you can sort of have your substrate, you plant into it every year, year after year after year, you're going to have to come up with a way to sort of uh, do away with those diseases, and that's where these petroleum fumigants really come in. They fumigants are fundamental to agriculture. You know, they, the way, and often we don't see them in the same way, right? When people think of pesticides, they think of these things that are sort of sprayed on crops, whereas humigants are actually uh, often in gaseous forms uh, injected into the soil. It basically is to sterilize the soil, to chemically sterilize the soil. Um, and that's, that's what happens, right? In the 1940s, uh, companies like Shell uh, develop, uh, these new soil fumigants that are, you know, based on synthetic waste products, essentially. And it it's hard to say, you know, to call it a miracle or a revolution in agriculture, but that what it was, it overcame an issue that would be fundamental to all agriculture across the world grown in the industrial use of reform. When you plant the same field over and over, it causes disease, but that planning the same field over and over is important for the sort of economic, you know, approach to agriculture. And thus one way to sort of make sure that you can continue to do that is simply to come up with a chemical treatment for that. And that's what the sort of soil fumigans end up being. And they're so key uh, that I really take to heart um, what one of the scientists said that, they were as important to industrial agriculture as the development of chemical fertilizer was. You know, there's a lot of work and a lot written about that moment, right? When, you know, for instance, uh nitrogen can be fixed out of the air, right? But this is just as important. It's happening underneath the soil. It creates a sterilized chemical substrate in which you can plant into over and over and over. And what actually ended up happening for many of these cases is that yields went up higher than they ever had before, especially when it's sort of combined with these new fertilizer technologies, which means that farmers didn't have to change. They didn't have to think about crop rotation or you know their practices at all. All they had to do was inject their soil with this chemical. You know, these are the very same chemicals that in California are still causing all sorts of harm. But it's not just California, it's agriculture across the world. Right? These are the unseen often chemicals of agriculture that without uh, agriculture would have to look quite a bit different.
1: I really like what you said about the temporal side of uh, monoculture um, and you mentioned shell, which takes us to our next question where we stay in the last chapter from oil well to farm. And there you describe how a Royal Dutch Shell technologist was inspired by how a telephone company laid down cables underground outside Sacramento. Who is this person? What did they see? And what happened next?
0: Yes, so it's that instance. As Shell enters uh, the petroleum industry in California about 1914, 1915, and they uh, decide to invest heavily in petrochemicals, they believe that is going to be the future of at least a uh, big future of petroleum. Um And as part of that, they invest heavily into uh, ammonia production, sort of one of the first uh, West Coast ammonia producing facilities, one of the biggest on the West Coast. Um, But when it comes to uh, chemicals, right, concentration really matters. You know, if you have a bunch of ammonia and it's dissolved in water or it's uh, added to a sort of granular fertilizer, right, it's that bulk excess that essentially is a waste product. It's not really necessary, and so uh, Floyd Leavitt is the person uh, you're talking about. They were trying to come up with more efficient ways to fertilize. Um, in this case, using ammonia in farms where you couldn't introduce it into water. And, and that's where the, the phone uh, laying cables comes into place. As they were trying to come up with ways in which to introduce pure ammonia directly to the soil Leavitt's gonna see phone cables being laid. And that's gonna sort of give him the idea. Well, maybe can't we can just do the same thing with gas. We can design a tractor that has a similar shank that the uh, subsoiler that was laying cable did. Instead of cable, however, spooling out the back, we're gonna spool whatever gas we choose, whether it be ammonia or eventually soil fumigants. All right, and that becomes really key, right? Because you need It's how you sort of place these chemicals at depth, how you get them into the soil um, that becomes really important.
1: Really terrifying forms of ecological control. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, sharing ideas and discoveries and insights from your book. Um, And I'd love to close today's interview with a final question. What are you working on these days? Uh, so
0: right now I'm writing a book about the history of surplus in agriculture. So one of the things that if you you know pick up the book, you'll see that this entire history of pesticides actually takes place during uh, an era of massive surplus. It's so often, pesticide discourse is framed around scarcity, but the actual history of it is kind of the opposite. Right. Even, even Rachel Carson mentions this in Silent Spring. Um, and so I'm actually writing a book about that, you know, about this history of abundance, right? What happens when abundance becomes the problem and not scarcity, right? For farmers, abundance is just as crushing as scarcity can be, right? As, price, as prices fall, as you don't get enough money to sort of, uh, you know, buy a new tractor or buy enough seed for the following year. Um, so that's what the book's about. Uh, I'm currently writing the chapter about the commodity credit corporation which, like the Crop Protection Institute, is this kind of quasi-governmental, it technically is a governmental, but it's a private corporation uh, that was developed during uh, the Great Depression as a way to uh, deal with overproduction, essentially. But what you actually end up happening is that this this, uh, corporation has effects all over the world. They're going to determine for instance, after World War II, which countries get access to America's abundance. They're going to determine who gets food assistance. They're going to determine when to ship food assistance, all those sorts of things. And so they actually become a key player. They not only shape United States agriculture, they actually shape diets across the world because of how uh, American surplus is, is or isn't, uh, they'll use forced upon countries. Um, So they play a really important role. So that's what I'm sort of writing about now is really thinking about agriculture, not from the scarcity side, but from the abundance side.
1: That sounds fascinating. I definitely look forward to following your work and I would like to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you, Adam. Take care and goodbye.
0: Thank you.